God, I want to thank you for grace, for mercy, for opening your heart to us through Jesus Christ. God, I know that we all come in this morning with all kinds of stuff in our lives and on our minds and in our hearts. God, I just pray just for a moment in time that you will help us to put all that stuff aside and to receive the word that you would have for each one of us. And so, God, I, pray, uh, I ask you that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart this morning would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we've been working through the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. We've been in there for quite a while. Um, and so we are going to continue to move through it. Now, I love this story because there's a lot going on here. Jesus is teaching a lot of things. A lot of things through his words, a lot of things through his actions, and a lot of things even what would look like his apparent inaction. And we landed last time we were together a bunch of weeks ago when we were talking about this story. We landed on the idea or when his statement, when he was talking to Martha, he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he kind of explains that a little bit, and and he asks her, do do you believe this? And we kind of wrestle with the idea that in order for there to be a resurrection, that something actually has to die. And we talked, maybe, what is it in our lives that God has to kill off? Or what is it in our life that, that we need to kill off in order to put God first? What are those things that we have put over God so that we can get rid of those, have a resurrection of new life? that we can walk in deeper intimacy with Christ. So what, were, what were those things? And, and I don't know if you thought about it more after that or not, but, you know, sometimes in, in, when you teach and when you preach, it's difficult because God, he's weird because, and I mean that in a good way, God, so don't strike me lightning. He's weird that when you, when, you, when you stand in front of people and you bring them the words of the Bible, he actually expects you to practice what you preach. Now, I just, I would never have signed up for this if I'd known that ahead of time. But so, so I've been really wrestling with some of the things in my life that God says, you know what, I don't like that. I don't like that. And, and you find yourself saying sorry a lot. And a lot quicker, you know, like, oh, sorry. Um, you can, Sandy can attest to that. <laughs> uh, so I'd encourage you that you would continue to work in those things in your life. What is it that God wants to kill off in you? so that you can be raised again to new life. And so Jesus kind of lays it out for Martha, and, and, and he asks her, Martha, do you believe? I mean, do you believe this? And she says, an amazing response, an amazing statement of her faith. And it's in John chapter 11, verse 27. But you know what? I'm going to read 25, and then we'll get to 27. That's right there. Verse 25 is the words of Jesus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me shall live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is Martha's response. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who came into the world. This statement from Martha never really gets the attention. It never really receives the attention it really deserves. This is an amazing statement, an amazing proclamation of faith. And for whatever reason, we always think of Martha from the story that's told about her in Luke, about the two sisters. Wes, go to the next slide. Let's look at this. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So in this story in Luke, we see that Martha seems to be a little bit distracted with the things that she's got to do. She's playing hostess. She's got a lot of people at her house. She's rushing around. She's making the meal. She's making sure everybody's comfortable. She is concerned with the daily grind of what life has presented her that day. And we always seem to give Mary the kudos because she sits at Jesus' feet and she listens. And Jesus was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's not going to be taken away from her. And he's like, Martha, you know, you get all caught up in things that really don't matter too much. And so for whatever reason, many of us have this idea of Martha that she is the lesser of the two sisters when it comes to spirituality. I mean, look at man. She, she's got Jesus, like, teaching. And she's worried about the dishes. And Martha, she's just sitting there, and she's just taking it all in and engaging. But what we fail to see as, and connect, I believe, is in John 11, this statement that she makes about Jesus has a lot of weight to it. It is very significant. See, she is not choosing her own way. She is not, she's not asking Jesus to change anything that has taken place. She is not angry with him. She is not upset with him. She just said to him a few verses before, you know, man, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says, but I, I believe, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that you're the Messiah. She accepts what Jesus has done for whatever reason he's done it. And I would add to that, that I don't believe she fully understands the implications of everything she's just said. But as far as she can, to the best of her ability at this point in her journey of faith, she has accepted Jesus and she has accepted his ways. Now, this is very good news for us because I know, I know it's probably not in this, our church or anything, but I'm sure out there somewhere there's a person who may be following Christ that might have once in a while had their faith tested in something. I know it doesn't happen here, but I mean, like out there in, in you know, in the pagan churches that, you know, that aren't our church, that somebody, somebody may have actually been tested in their faith or, okay, this might happen in more than, I know it doesn't happen here, but out there. What if sometimes it's like, Life distracts them from what's really important. And you begin to lose, they, not you, they begin to lose focus on the things God has called us to. Maybe they got caught up in all the stuff in life and got really busy and just, and just kind of put the tunnel vision blinders on and they're just doing what they had to do to get through, to survive the day. And they miss what's really important. They miss the point seems like, you know, you know, you ever have those weeks or those months where you're doing a lot of chopping, but there doesn't seem to be any wood chips flying. But in that, if you have ever found yourself in that situation, in that, but you, you still believe, right? You haven't, you haven't stopped believing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, sent to reconcile all things back to the way God originally had put them in order. You still believe that. And, and let me tell you something. If you are honestly, honestly 
pressing in to God and doing the best that you can to figure this thing of faith out. If you're not making excuses for the things that you shouldn't be doing, and if you're not making excuses for the things that you know you should be doing, but you just can't quite get there yet, you're accepting your junk, you're accepting responsibility, and you continue to press in, you see, that's, that's Martha's story. She's not perfect. She's not. She, she comes with brokenness. She comes with worries of life. She comes with missing the point. She comes with being distracted. And Martha's story is our story. And our story is Martha's story because none of us here are with our, our own faults and our own brokenness. And we are all trying to figure out. And in, even in our shortcomings, it's our faith that ties us to Jesus. It's our faith that can tie us to Jesus. And you know what I find? It's way too easy for the Christian world to begin to look at other people's faith. To begin to kind of critique those people. Because, you know, let's face it. If somebody has faith, then there should be evidence of that faith in their life. Correct? We like to say, we like to use the word, there's fruits. It's very Christianese. You know, there's fruit to their faith, which is kind of corny. Anyway. We're talking agriculture, though, aren't we? Aren't we? So maybe, maybe we can go, there's vegetables to that, to that faith. Come on, that was funny, all right? People are going to listen to that online and laugh. Waste all the good jokes on you, man. Where was I? So anyway, and, but I guess, I guess I always land on the question of, well, how much evidence, how much fruit is enough? What's, what's the standard? that I can judge somebody's faith walk by. And, and better yet, who gets to make the standard? Do you? Do you get to make the standard of somebody else's faith journey? Like, yeah, they don't have enough faith. There's not enough fruit there. Yeah, they don't have enough faith because obviously they're not doing this. You know what? I find that even at my best, which I am miles away from, even at my best, I would fall miserably short in the eyes of God. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I need a savior. And what I continue to learn and what I continue to be reminded of is I always, me personally, Dennis, I need to recognize my own brokenness. I need to recognize my junk and my shortcomings and own it and not to make excuses for it. But in saying that, I also need to recognize my faith and my longing for a deeper intimacy with Christ. And if I can kind of weigh these two evenly, maybe I can stop beating myself up all the time over the things that, you know, that that voice that gets in your head that tells you, you're not good enough, look at you, you messed up, God can never forgive that. What are you, crazy? You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a father, you really love your wife, you really love your, you're going to talk to all of those things that go on in your head. See, you can't make excuses for the junk, but you also can recognize your faith. You can't live with just a whatever attitude, but you have to continually press in to who God is. And by recognizing my own faults, by owning them, by also recognizing that that I have faith and I accept Jesus for who he is. He is the son of God sent to reconcile my life back to God's, God's harmony. 
then, then, then with those things, I can stand before you and say, I am a man of faith. And if you believe Jesus is the son of God, sent into this world to be the Messiah, the Savior, that his, his mission is to reconcile all things, to make all things new, put them all back into harmony with God. And if you're just not making excuses for the way you're living, but man, you are really trying, then you too are a, a man of faith. And you too are a woman of faith. And if you can begin to take an honest look at yourself, both in the, in the bad and in the things that you're falling short in, and also in the good that you are a man or a woman of faith, then you could begin to see others in a different light. You know, Mary, I'm sorry, Martha in this story should be remembered for this statement that she made about Jesus at a very painful time in her life. Her brother has just died, and the guy that could have done something about it, he doesn't show up for four days later. She should be remembered for that, not for a time where she fell a little short and got distracted with life trying to do things in the world. And if we can get a handle on that in our own lives, we can begin to see the faith in people. In fact, dare I say, we would be able to begin to see the Jesus in people. And we would be able to begin to treat people with the same grace that Jesus has treated every one of us. And I would say with the same grace that Jesus treats every one of us every moment of every day. We can come alongside people, not because we have it all figured out, not because we know that we can fix them because we have the answers. We come alongside people because we know that we too are broken. And we long for them to be healed. And you know what I find in my life? As I come alongside people and help them to heal through things, part of me is healed also. And we can come alongside and, and offer them love and grace, the very thing that we long for in our lives, both from, from God and I would say from, from people, from our friends, from our family. We all hope that we will be loved and shown grace from the people we interact with. You know, my dad used to say when we were growing up, he used to call it the boomerang of life. Whatever you throw out there eventually is going to come back. And man, if you're throwing out love and grace and caring and mercy, it's going to come back. If you throw out judgment and condemnation, pointing the finger, it's going to come back. Let's go to verse 28, John 11. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Martha gets finished with this dialogue with Jesus. She heads back. She tells Mary, oh, the teacher's here. And he's looking for you. Now, it's very interesting that Martha, a woman, would call, call Jesus the teacher, the teacher. 
It's interesting because, well, Jesus was known for his teaching, not only for his miracles, but he was known as the rabbi, as, as the teacher. But a woman would never be taught by a rabbi. A rabbi during this time would refuse to teach women. In fact, most rabbis would refuse to talk to women. Most of the time, a lot of the times, they would refuse to talk to their own wives because it would cause them, it could cause them to stumble. It could cause them to sin in their heart or with their eyes, they believe. And it would pull them away from the study of Torah. It would be better to study Torah than to talk to your wife. Now, we've talked about this before. Dr. Phil would have a field day on rabbis of the first century. But, but that's the way the culture was. And, and so Mary, she hears that the teacher is there, and she runs out, and she wants to meet Jesus. She gets up really fast and heads out, and a bunch of people follow her. And she finds him, and she falls at his feet, And she says the same thing to him as Martha said. If you were here, my brother would have not died. Mary also has this faith that Jesus could have done something. Mary also has the faith that that the things that Jesus was teaching are connected to the things that Jesus was doing, and he could have done something. But there's there's nothing more in her statement. There's There's nothing that we see as deep as what Martha professed. Now, we don't know if John just kind of left that out or that's all that she said. She falls at his feet. If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Next slide, Wes. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. So now we see Mary, she's, she's weeping. And the Jews that were with her, the people that were with her were weeping. She, there's, this is a much more emotionally charged scene than when Martha had met Jesus. And this, this idea, the words that are describing weeping would literally be translated into just wailing loudly. And the people that are with her are wailing. There's just this deep emotional gut response to to their mourning. It was the habit of the day for when, when you would be crying or mourning for somebody that was dead, it would be just unrestrained and very loud and very noisy. People almost just throwing themselves on the ground, throwing dirt on themselves, a very, very unrestrained way of mourning. And this is what this is the the experience that Jesus is encountering right now. This is what he sees. These are all these people are around him. Deep, profound levels of grief being um, being shown and 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 just lived out in front of him. And it says that he is deeply moved in his spirit. He's troubled. The phrase deeply moved is very um, very unusual in this context. It, the, the phrase literally means a loud, inarticulate noise. And usually when this phrase is used, it's used to describe the snorting of a horse. And if it's ever used in the context of people, it would be used to describe somebody who is very, very angry. You know when you just get really mad, you're just like, oh! It's used to describe that noise. 
to be deeply moved. But I do not believe in reading this story. I do not believe that Jesus is angry with anyone. He is not angry at these people for mourning the loss of his friend. What I believe here is he is just profoundly, deeply affected by what he is seeing. And to the point of just making just this noise in his gut. And just, just he's responding to it. Remember the story I told you last week of when we came out of the mission home when we were in Honduras. And I walked out of the home and there was this small funeral procession of a little baby because they were carrying the casket on one, one man's shoulder. And they were walking this, this little baby to, to the grave, uh, to the cemetery. And I came and I closed the door and I turned around and I just went, ugh. You know, it's, it's something, something like that because sometimes pain and grief and sorrow and hurt, it just kind of lands in your gut. And there's no way else that you can respond to it but just, mm. and I believe that's what Jesus is speaking here. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is experiencing here. And he asked, being moved and troubled, he asked, well, where is he? Where, where have you laid him? Where's the grave? And they say, well, come with us. We'll show you. And, then, and we find Jesus Weeping, the text says, verse 35, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But I believe it's one of the most profound verses in the Bible. And it's not, he's, he's not wailing like he saw the other people wailing. This is more of just an inward, probably tears running down his face, saddened by what he sees. Jesus is grieving the experience that is taking place in front of him. And have you ever asked yourself why? Have you ever asked yourself, why is he so upset? Why is Jesus grieving? He knows how this story ends. When he got the word four days earlier that his friend, the one that he loved, Lazarus, is sick, he just kind of said, don't worry about it. It's not going to end in death. Jesus knows what's going to happen. The raising of Lazarus from the dead wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing for him. He has had this thing planned out from the very beginning. He told his disciples, this is for the glory of God and so that the Son will be glorified four days before he ever gets there. So why, Jesus, why is he so upset? Why is he crying? Why is he deeply moved in his spirit? It's a great question. Thank you for asking. And I want to explain that to you. It's because of what he's seeing in the people. He's looking and watching people who are mourning and grieving without any hope. He's looking at people mourning and grieving without knowing who he really is and his message of salvation and the gift of eternal life. He's mourning for them because they don't seem to be getting it. And they are missing the point. And if they are mourning without hope, then there's a very good possibility that they are living their lives without the hope of Christ. And so he is he's saddened to the point of tears that these people have yet to accept who he is in their entirety. He's not angry at them. He's not frustrated with them. His heart is broken for them. And he cries. He weeps. When our team was in Honduras, we found that it was very easy for us to be sad, very easy to be deeply troubled, very easy to be moved and saddened by the things that we've seen, that we were, we were experiencing. Poverty like most of us never will experience. 
no food, drinking water in, in old two, three liter soda bottles that is cloudy at best is what the people drink. Sickness that largely will go untreated. Common skin diseases that will largely go untreated. Infections that we could just wash it out with some clean water, put a little neosporin on it and a band-aid that are infected because there is no clean running water band-aids or neosporin. Hunger. People are hungry all the time. Sometimes they have one meal a day and it's a tortilla, hopefully with a little beans and maybe salt. And that's like Sunday dinner right there. That's, that's a good one for them. Children running around with no shoes. When we were in the schools, the schools all are gated. And you have to have a uniform to go to school. And some families don't have the money to send their kids to school with a uniform. And some parents don't even care if their kids get an education. So as we're in these schools, and, and part of our program was to just kind of hang with these kids and play soccer and wiffle ball and play with them, all the kids lined up at the gate looking in because they, they know they can't get in there to go to school. It's really easy to become saddened and deeply troubled and moved by those experiences that we saw. In fact, some, some would even, some of our team cried on a few occasions. They were moved to tears. I, I can't explain this to you, but when we were praying with people, when we would go to their homes and pray, you can feel, physically feel hopelessness. And I can't explain what that feels like, but it's, it's, it's a darkness. It's just, you can physically feel people's hopelessness and it's easy to be moved and saddened and to be brought to tears but you know jesus in this story he's he's not weeping over that that type of people he's not weeping over the outcast he's not weeping over the impoverished or the sick or the very poor that have absolutely nothing he's not weeping over people that are just hopeless and ever even getting the basic necessities of life. He's, he is engaging his contemporaries. These, these are people that he sees every day. The, the, the text tells us that they are called the Jews. These are the people that would be engaging the Jewish traditions as best they could. They would be at the temple worshiping God. They would have had the means to pay for the temple tax. They would have had the means to buy sacrifices to make sure that they follow the tenets of Judaism. They would have been able to tithe to the temple. They would have been able to put, they would put food on the table. These are the, the people that Jesus saw from town to town and village to village. The shopkeeper, the stonemason, the seamstress, the tent maker, moms, dads, families. These aren't the fringe people. These are the everyday common folk of the day. Jesus would engage these people all the time. Yes, they would be experiencing everyday problems that, that we all would experience. But, you know, certain things are inherent to being under Roman oppression back then. But they are not the broken, broken people. They are not the lepers that are outcasts. They don't have the jobs that are, that are considered dirty and not being able to come to the temple. These are everyday folks. And Jesus is deeply troubled and moved that they don't get it. And he cries. He cries for them. When was the last time you were deeply moved or troubled or brought to tears for the everyday people that you meet in your life? 
for the people that you work with, that you would be just troubled in your spirit because they don't know Jesus. For your boss, for your family members, have you ever been moved to tears for them? For the, for the guy who gets your coffee in the morning, to the person you pay for your gas, to the checkout person at Walmart, are you ever troubled because they may not know Jesus and they may be living a life in hopelessness? Have you ever been moved like that for the people that you know don't have a relationship with Christ? Have you ever been moved to the point of tears for that person who is arrogant enough to think that they don't need a relationship with Jesus? They don't need God in their life. Have you ever been troubled for them? Or what about that person who thinks that you are weak because you need religion? You need God. Have you ever cried for that person? Or what about that person that just aggravates the death out of you? And you know, I know you're Christians. You're not supposed to get aggravated. Get over it. We all do. We all have those people in our lives that you just want to poke in the eye, double time, boing, in the name of Jesus. I get that. But what about those people? Have you ever cried over them and were deeply moved in your spirit because they, they don't know Christ? What about the brothers and sisters of faith, the ones that are struggling or the ones that are just making poor choices? Do you arrogantly point your finger at them and stand in judgment? Are you deeply troubled for them and just want to come alongside them and help them through whatever it is they're going through? Have you been deeply affected so it's physically um, evident in you that you're broken for these people? This event in the gospel, in John's gospel, this raising of Lazarus, will bring glory to God, and it will glorify the Son. But this is the event that gets the ball rolling for Jesus. This is the event that's going to make his enemies get so aggravated, bring them to the boiling point. Now they have to kill this guy. And this is going to start it. And from here on in, things are not going to go well for him, for Jesus, until the cross, when he makes all things right for us. Jesus will not only shed his tears for these people, everyday common folk, he will give the ultimate sacrifice of his life. He will give his life so that all people, all people can know healing and hope. He will give his life every day and serve people so that they may know life. I guess the question for us is, are we willing to do the same. On the night Jesus would be betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat it for this is my body which has been broken for you. And then after the meal, he took the cup. In the Jewish tradition, it was the cup of redemption, the Passover cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood. This is a new and it's an everlasting covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. As we celebrate the table, we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate his heart that it breaks over all people 
that all people would know him, that all people would come into a relationship with him, that all people would be reconciled to God through him. But he's also given us the charge to be the light of the world. And so as you come forward, I just want you to kind of think about what's been given to you and what your responsibility is to give to others. And come forward as you're ready, and you can take the cup and the bread, and then we'll take it together, and we'll end our time with, with a song.